Uh, yes, thank you, Nicholas. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, I have to start with uh, this slide, uh, not my preferred slide, but um, it's the coronavirus. So it's having a significant impact on shipping. It's uh, disrupting the whole supply chain. Uh, we are mainly watching the second derivative of the spread at the moment. Uh, and as you can see, it's, um, it's into negative territory. Uh, there is, however, some uncertainty around the data. And uh, I have uh, adjusted that second derivative for one outlier, which was when they um, started with new diagnostic methods in China. And we saw a big jump. Um, However, it's, uh, I think it's too early to conclude that um, uh, the spread is, is abating. Uh, the, the incubation time is, uh, is long, and as mentioned, the data quality remains an issue. Uh, there's also fear of a second wave uh, originating outside of China. Uh, but our base case is for um, a significant impact on shipping in the first half of 2020. Uh, but we see a strong rebound in the second half of the year, uh, which, uh, in addition to Chinese stimulus, could come um, and exaggerate the usual seasonal uh, effects. So, moving over to LPG shipping, uh, mainly focusing on the very large gas carriers. Uh, we see a net uh, supply growth of 7% in uh, 2020. Uh, as January saw the highest monthly supply growth since the middle of 2016, one third of that growth forecast is already on the water. We also forecast a 7% demand growth in 2020, uh, but a negative demand growth in 2021. US LPG exports is the main driver behind the growth and the recent fall in energy prices is a cause for concern for U.S. LPG production in 2021, and it could also narrow the price differential between U.S. Uh, and the Far East, which is important for the freight revenue for VLGCs. After 2021, we see a fairly balanced supply and demand. So, looking at the details, in early January, we expected April 2020 to mark the peak of this uh, cycle. Um, however, due to the coronavirus, we now have revised that down, and we think the peak is already behind us. We think spot rates will have a slow uh, instead of decline throughout 2020. With limited growth in both demand uh, and supply from 2021, we forecast the cyclical trough for 21-22, but the market to bottom out at a fairly high level versus the last trough. Regardless, we see downside risk to both asset and share prices from current levels, but see the potential for another cyclical expansion from 2023 and into the middle of this decade. So uh, moving on to LNG shipping. We believe 2020 could be a decent year with balanced supply and demand growth, but the year is off to a slow start due to the warm winter and the coronavirus. Our annual fleet growth forecast for both 2021 and 2022 is 9%, uh, and it compares to our annual demand growth forecast, uh, similarly, of only 4%. 
this is due to a very limited uh, new liquefaction capacity coming uh, online during these years. Uh, however, after that, demand is set to grow significantly from 2023, with around 300 new LNG carriers needed by the middle of this decade. This compared to the order book uh, at the moment at around 120 large LNG carriers, but unfortunately there is plenty of time to order new vessels before uh, the middle of the decade. Currently, the LNG market is oversupplied with limited support from regional price differentials like the important trade between the US and the Far East. Limited new liquefaction capacity is coming online in the next few years. This could be good and a chance to rebalance the market, but it's not necessarily good for LNG shipping. We expect that the rapid growth in liquefaction capacity from 2023 will change the fortunes for shipping owners. We believe the ongoing trend for cleaner fossil fuels in Asia will be supportive, leading to a significant increase in ton mile demand. New building contracting will be key to watch going forward, uh, in addition to the progress of the liquefaction uh, projects coming on. So looking at dry bulk, currently scrapping has picked up uh, at the start of the year. It's um, basically due to the abysmal earnings and uh, the weak outlook. Uh, but the new building ordering is very low, with the order book versus the fleet at its lowest level since 1997. Even though we briefly saw a nine-year high in spot rates last year, new building contracting remained muted amidst uncertainty over changing regulations and new technology. Valles dam collapse last year was a major setback for dry bulk shipping, and we don't expect Brazilian iron ore uh, exports to normalize before the middle of 2021. In the near term, we see a weak first half of 2020 from the coronavirus and the highest fleet growth since the first half of 2016. As the delivery schedule of the current order book is skewed towards prompt delivery, our base case is for a strong rebound in the second half of 2020 with seasonal effects enhanced by Chinese stimuli and the resupply effect post-coronavirus. For the longer term, we expect Chinese steel production to develop flat from 2019 levels, but for the substitution effect of, uh, towards higher grade iron ore and coal to be resurrected when the ongoing supply disruption abates. Although we only expect dry bulk demand growth of 3 to 4% 4, uh, 4 beyond 2020, this is still enough to outpace the expected fleet growth, which is uh, just above 0%. So, looking at the big picture, allowing for two years of flattish development, we believe the ongoing expansionary cycle in dry bulk, which started in 2016, could, be, uh, could last until 2024, which would make it one of the longest on record, which goes back to 1741. Although the direction over the next six months is uh, highly uncertain, we see a potential 34% upside to asset prices over the next two years and 121 upside to our dry bulk share index over the same period. I think uh, slow and steady sums up our uh, view of uh, dry bulk going forward. So, uh, oil tankers, 
2019 turned out to be an even better uh, year than we had anticipated. A front running of refinery maintenance capacity in the first half of the year, in conjunction with uh, sanctions on Chinese shipping and other factors, created one of the best markets we have seen in a long time. Despite OPEC cutting production in 2019, the tanker market was fine, as the cuts was primarily driven by an increased production in the Atlantic and not a lack of demand for oil. The substitution of OPEC oil for Atlantic sourced oil led to longer sailing distances with a corresponding multiplier on uh, the increased volumes. Ahead of the March OPEC meeting, we expect further cuts to be made, but this time it's mainly driven by a demand shock from the coronavirus. This is thus not necessarily supportive of tanker market in the near, in the near term. Looking further afield, the lowest relative order book uh, since January 1997 is in itself a cause for great optimism. We see annualized fleet growth, uh, growth hovering around 2 to 3% in the coming years against a demand growth of 2 to 6%, supporting a consistent high fleet utilization on an annualized basis. So on that note, we see a strong oil tanker earnings over the next few years with distinct seasonal properties. Although the coronavirus outbreak leaves some downside risk to our one, uh, first half 2020 forecast, we retain our base case that most of the lost demand will be recaptured in the second half of this year. Thus, we could see an upcoming winter market, which is similar to the very strong market we just came uh, out of this January. For the medium term, we still see asset and share prices trailing the strong fundamentals. Our oil tanker asset price index has risen 25% since the trough in the middle of 2018, and we see another 33% upside to asset prices over the next two years. This could take our oil tanker share index 96% higher uh, versus current pricing. So, summing up the various shipping cycles, gas transportation seems to be at peak levels with potential downside in the short and medium term. We believe dry bulk shipping is taking a breather amidst black swan events and that most of the cyclical upside is still ahead. For oil tankers, we believe we are close to peak levels on an annualized basis but forecast an unusually long peak this cycle due to the lowest relative order book in more than 20 years. In fact, we believe the low new building contracting will persist given the uncertainty around new regulations and technology, which could lay the foundations for a decade of unusually high returns for shipping. So, thank you for your attention. Our research is freely available on our website. I'm now happy to take any questions if you have the time. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I do. Perfect. All right, well, let's see if, oh, there we go. Um, 
I forgot my presentation, so I'll be just as surprised at what we see here as you are. Um, but uh, the, the point of what I'm talking about, and first of all, thank you, Nicholas, for, for having me again. I really appreciate it. Um, the, the point of what we're talking about is um, Joachim did a fantastic job talking about the market dynamics. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what how investors are thinking about those market dynamics and how they're thinking about um, putting money to work within the shipping space with a primary focus on public uh, equity and debt investors, but also private investors as well. So with that said, and you can sort of see what the title here is, and I'll, I'll move it forward one as well. Um, I, I think this uh, from, from our good friend, uh, Dante and his divine comedy uh, lays out how many investors think about shipping uh, as is as if they are going in to the gates of inferno into the gates of hell when they're making uh, shipping investments. That's the current typical approach. There's a lot of skepticism uh, and. Um, not to say that they don't do it, certainly, but uh, certainly more caution, I think, than there had been in the past. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. Let's see if we can move forward one here. There we go. So here's, here's a good reason for uh, investor caution. If you look at 2019, it was almost across the board fantastic. Uh, you can see the returns. Uh, for LPG shipping, crude tanker shipping, and these are public equities. Uh, if you would have invested in almost anything within shipping last year, you probably were going to do certainly better than the market. Um, and, and that's great. It's very exciting. And then not so much in 2020. Uh, it's, it, as all of you here know, uh, this is a pretty volatile and cyclical business. And, um, and that over the 15 years that I've been working with public investors in the shipping space is, is no longer lost on many public investors. They appreciate that uh, this is a, um, let's call it a date and not marry industry with respect to, uh, with respect to how they think about um, putting money to work within the shipping space. Um, so moving along. And here's why. Because for every bull case, there is almost always an equal and opposite bear case. And I think oftentimes we, uh, as me even as an analyst, and, and oftentimes owners that have very vested interests in the strong performance of their assets, uh, can be anchored to the op upside, to optimism. Um, but the reality is uh, there are oftentimes things that weigh against that. And I think that's the, the, probably the number one question I'm asked by investors, and probably the most important question they can ask is, how can I be wrong? What am I not thinking about? This is a very, you know, if you look at, let's say, supply, dry bulk supply, tanker supply, whatever, it's, it's relatively low, but what could go wrong? And sometimes we don't know, as, as Joachim was saying, you know, coronavirus, nobody saw that coming, but what could go wrong? And, I, and, and there's a few things, and, and I'm not going to go into all of them, but if you look at the tanker space, for instance, everyone's really optim or, uh, absent coronavirus, many people are very optimistic. But if you dig into the details a little bit and you look at where oil growth is coming from, as it turns out, uh, of the prior to the recent cut by the IEA, the IEA was looking for 1.2 million barrels 
a day of oil demand. Well, that's, that's great. That's, uh, let's call it 3 to 4% uh, underlying tanker demand, except if you really dig into the fine print, of that, 0.6 million barrels was actually propane and ethane. So the IEA was saying, really, we're only expecting about 500,000 uh, barrels a day of underlying oil demand growth, which is 1% to 2% um, tanker demand growth. And then if you bake in coronavirus against that, it, it's more of a problem. Another, another bull case for many tanker investors is that the U.S. is going to really drive underlying ton-mile demand growth. And that's certainly true, and I certainly agree with that. But uh, 2021 is almost certainly going to be the peak for U.S. oil production. So you have a nice runway for the next 24 months. And then after that, unless oil prices come up a lot, uh, you're probably not going to have that same ton-mile demand factor. So not, not to be negative or bearish, but I think it's important that, that me as an analyst and investors be aware that, that, that there, are, there are weighting factors, and that's true of all of these spaces. And, and I think increasingly, as, as investors have seen the volatility, as we were showing earlier, that they're um, at least cognizant and, and aware of the fact that things don't always go exactly to plan, and sometimes we're not looking at all of the information um, that dictates how um, underlying performance of the assets will play out. So that was just a, an example. So now, what, what, is, what do investors really care about? And this is generally true of, uh, of the public more liquid assets, like, like equities and debt, more so than it is private equity. Uh, and this is a little bit hard to see, but uh, the, the point is that in periods of time where there are not big shocks in, uh, in, in the day rates, as was the case in dry bulk or tankers, uh, there's not a very strong correlation between the underlying rates and the stock prices. Uh, and in general, and we'll get to this in a minute, uh, in periods of time where there's not big moves in the rates, uh, the equities have traded, at least for tankers and dry bulk, well below their NAVs. What does that mean? It means that uh, if, if investors don't have a catalyst, don't have a reason to believe, then they don't care at all. It doesn't matter what the price is. It doesn't matter where the NAV is. It doesn't matter what supply looks like. They're indifferent. Uh, they need to have a, a reason to believe. They need that momentum um, behind them, um, which certainly it, you, you can see when the rates move, there's a very tight correlation when they move um, um, extraordinarily large moves. Um, there's a very tight correlation between the valuation and, and the underlying cash flows. But when there's not, or when the rates are only moving or bouncing around the bottom, um, it, my phone turns off and, and people are, are no longer very interested, or at least the vast majority. So what does that mean? And we'll get to this next. Uh, so what does that mean? It means that by and large, as many of you know, and this isn't necessarily true of things like containers or LNG or LPG, but uh, you go through these periods of time where the public equities trade at big discounts for sustained periods of time to what the underlying NAV is. And why is that? Again, it's a lack of interest. It, people just don't care if there's not the ability to make really outsized returns in a short period of time because most people aren't investors, they're traders. And if they can't make a trade, then they're, again, not, not universally true, but many of them are, aren't just too 
awfully interested in doing anything at all. They'll go invest in Amazon or something else. Um, now, uh, th this isn't necessarily true of the, um, of the private equity universe, but I would say that the private equity universe is smaller than it used to be. And so I think there, there are pockets of capital that are interested in a um, little bit longer duration investments, but need to feel as though they're doing so with an edge or an angle. Um, so simply, you know, co-investing without any extra um, element of protection or a promote is not as interesting as it used to be for many investors. Um, so what, uh, what matters? What dictates the valuation of a lot of these investors? The, the number one thing, uh, and, and there, I, I've, I, we've run some regressions, and the, the most important thing is share price liquidity. Um, so for public equity investments, if you don't have liquidity in your shares, you're not going to trade at a good valuation. It is as simple as that. If, if there is not a substantial enough market cap with enough average daily trading volume, um, it, it, there certainly are outliers, but in general, both of those lines are upward trending. And so it, it, that is, that's probably the most important factor. The other thing that you find is, generally speaking, uh, the better the balance sheet, the better the valuation. And then lastly, um, the um, perception of management and transparency and so forth uh, tends to lend itself to better valuation as well. So I, I, would, I would note, as you can see here, that the data is somewhat disparate. So it's, it's not a hard and fast rule, but I think all of those things uh, are certainly part of the investment decision that many investors undertake. So, um, again, I, I would, uh, if, if I were advising, I would say bigger is better and cleaner is better and less debt is better. And that's simply the way that it is. Um, oh, and then lots and lots of compliance mumbo jumbo. Um, so, with that, hopefully I went fast enough. I think we did. Are you, you ready? Yeah. All right. I think we are ready to take a few questions if we have time. All right. We have one question. Uh, ben, you made a differentiation for containers. The sector, how does that compare with the dry bulk and tankers? So, so uh, I would say in general, um, I, the the way I would differentiate it is that. At least, at least for some of the bigger, um, you know, let's take Costamara, C-SPAN, or some of the bigger ones, uh, their cash flows are where most people are, most investors are anchored, rather than the underlying asset values. And so, if you have you know, whatever an average of eight-year remaining duration on contracts, people are going to fixate on the cash flows that those contracts translate into, and NAV becomes uh, less of a, uh, of a factor. All right. Oh, wait. Jeff? Yeah, hi, Ben. Yeah, you wrote this morning, but this question for Jokob, too, but you wrote this morning that uh, as an example, someone just published results. Sting may have found the bottom, but 
I'm not sure is a catalyst for recovery. How long do you both think that the, I know we don't, you're not experts on illness or disease, but, but uh, if you take a reasonable scenario for the, uh, the virus, wouldn't the um, recovery from that be a catalyst for some, uh, some of the shipping stocks to, uh, to run again? I, I, I do, although I think more importantly, um, and I, I think that it certainly could lend itself to a bounce off the bottom, no question. Uh, but before people are going to be willing to actually put incremental, let's say, non-bounce-off-the-bottom capital to work, growth capital, trade capital, they probably are going to need a reason to believe that rates are going to do more than just sort of bounce off the bottom. So uh, to retest previous highs, I think it's going to take more than just sort of an, an abatement of the coronavirus. <clears throat> Yeah, the, so um, I think it's uh, way too early to conclude that this is over. But um, again, with my graph on the second derivative, I think that's the first sign, and then the first derivative potentially becomes negative, and then we start seeing the things clear out. But uh, it, it's uncertain. But our base case is, is as mentioned, that this will have a, a positive effect on the second half. And I think if that comes into fruition, I think investors will soon forget the pains of this first half and uh, will be eager to buy shares again. So our recommendation is uh, for the less risk-averse uh, investor, uh, this is, could be a great opportunity to pick up some stocks uh, below uh, net asset values, which in many segments we believe will be higher in one year uh, versus today. Yeah, I generally agree with that. I think there's companies like yours that are well run and have good valuation and you can probably get a nice bounce off of it. But again, uh, for, for the pace of investment to pick up to where it was, I mean, there's not another IMO 2020 in June, right? So need, need another something for people to anchor into. All right. Thank you very much. Kept it on time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Joachim. Thank you, uh, Ben. So I will kindly ask Stamatis Fradellos to come and uh, take over and guide us through the first panel of the day on uh, IMO, uh, the experience gained so far. So uh, I, I can see Claire was here. I can see Hamish, George Saroglu and uh, Andreas, and I hope you are here as well. 